Well, when I was up here before, I brought with me this piece of paper that I wanted to tell you about and completely forgot. So now I'm going to tell you about it. This is uh, it's called Around the Globe, and it's uh, an update for this month of August. And uh, so it has a various uh, names of our missionaries that are on there and some updates that are going on with them. And this isn't just for me or just for us or whatever. This is available to all of you, uh, and it's back there on the Resource Center on the right side. You can uh, see that there. There are probably 10 or 15 of them left in there. So you can grab that uh, to help you pray for our missionaries throughout the week. And I'm appreciative to, uh, to uh, Maria Ward and Dale White for putting that together and keeping us updated on what's happening around the world. Uh, I can testify as being a, a former missionary that when you're um, so far from your home church and your home culture, you can feel pretty alone sometimes. And so this is a way for us to be updated and uh, attached to them and praying for them in ways that are uh, important to them. So I encourage you to uh, grab one of those on the way out. Also a reminder, we are celebrating the Lord's Supper today. So if you've not yet picked up the elements, I encourage you to do so in the next uh, few minutes so that we can have those ready. And um, that way we can partake of that together at the end of our time. Open your Bibles, please, to Genesis chapter 9. Genesis chapter 9 is where we're going to be in our message today, and uh, the plan is to finish out chapter 9 today, and uh, you've got uh, notes there that you can uh, work through to help us look at this passage, but I want to read it for us before we get to that point. Genesis chapter 9, we're going to look at verses 18 through the end of that chapter. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, a servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years, and the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. Let's pray. Father, we quiet our hearts before you this morning, and we ask that you would work in us, in our own hearts, in our lives, even today, as we have your word open before us. We ask that you would minister to us. Pray that you would help us to understand this passage and understand what it points to. 
And I pray that even as we do so, that you would prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper at the end. We are grateful for the covering that we have in Christ. So speak to us now from your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. One of the big red flags that I wish uh, people would pay more attention to when they talk about religion or really a a number of other topics, but I will stick to the point of religion and beliefs, Uh, a red flag I wish people would pay attention to is when an organization or a religion or a church discourages asking questions. Anytime they say, no, we should just leave that alone, don't think too hard about that, don't probe into that topic, that's a, that's a problem. It, it usually means something is being covered up. There's an area that they don't want to uh, look into. They don't want it to be publicly known, or, uh, or perhaps there's some sort of discontinuity within their worldview or their system, and they don't want you to dig into those areas. And so that's one of the reasons that we encourage you to ask questions. Ask questions about the Bible. Ask questions about what we teach. Ask questions about what we believe. Because we want to understand and we want to know what is written here and we want all of us to know what is written here in this Word and to understand it and to believe what is true. And so we encourage questions. Sometimes the answers to those questions will be challenging. And so we seek to give those answers gently. Sometimes we don't know the answers to those questions. And so we seek to find those answers. And sometimes there may not be a good answer because the Bible doesn't tell us. Well, today's passage, I think, may be one of those uh, where we are left with a certain part not understanding. Not understanding, not the point of the passage, not the direction it goes, but some of the questions that we might ask of this passage we may not find good answers to, and that's a hard thing, isn't it? Sometimes we're curious about the little areas. We want to know these things, and we want to know what's going on behind the story or something like that, and, and uh, we're not always told the answer. Well, when people come to me with questions, they come to us asking questions, usually the kinds of questions for which I often don't have a good answer are the why questions. Why did this happen? Why didn't something else work out? Why did this difficult situation arise? Why me? Those are the questions, for many of us, that's the first question we think of. And maybe it's a little frustrating because there's no good answer. Uh, Often in Scripture we are not told why things happen to us. It's hard to take that. Sometimes we might be shown why in Scripture. Sometimes we might understand why a thing happened in our own lives, and often that's not the case. And those are difficult situations. When people come to me with those kinds of questions, the way I try to go about answering that question is to remind them that though we don't understand the situation clearly, and I can't see to the end of it to tell you what's going to be accomplished or why this thing happened or why that thing didn't work out, yet I try to remind them we know that God is sovereign and we know that we can trust Him. And so though I don't understand the situation perhaps, 
Yet I trust God who is sovereign over the situation. Now that, for many, doesn't answer the question all the way to the end because what they really wanted to know was, why me? Why not? And why this situation? But when we look to God and we are reminded that He is sovereign, that He is good and we can trust Him, we find a place of rest in the midst of that uncertainty about that situation. And so that's uh, the first uh, conversation I like to have on that topic that's important for me, and I remind myself of that truth. And as a part of that conversation, we can also look to Scripture and we can see again and again in situations that when you run across it in the, in the, in the, the text of Scripture and you think, what good could possibly come of this? Why did that happen to that person? Why didn't something better work out? We can look to Scripture and we can see that God brought good out of that situation. Even though it may have seemed like an impossible situation, something that we couldn't possibly understand, yet we see the consequences of it and that God brought good out of even that situation. And so when I do that, when I remember God's sovereignty and His goodness that I can trust Him, when I see examples from Scripture of Him bringing good out of awful situations, I can take courage in my own situation. That even though I don't see to the end and I don't know quite how it's going to settle out, quite what the good is going to look like, yet I trust God who is bringing about that good. I'm reminded of uh, Paul's summary of this in Romans 8.28. We know that for those who love God and are called according to His purpose, God is working all things out for good for them. We know that. It's a statement of Scripture that Paul says about us, that God is working all things for good. And so I can take encouragement, even though I don't see, I don't know, but I trust Him. And He says He is working it out for my good as a Christian. Well, our passage today is a good example of God bringing redemptive and sanctifying good out of the sinfulness of man. In our passage, we see the tragedy of a good and a godly man falling into sin, and then we see one of his sons running with that and making it worse, and it results in cursing being done. And so what we want to do is work through our passage today and see what God brings out of this sinful situation. And so we turn to our passage now, and we look first of all at uh, what I've called a second fall. Look at verse 20 particularly. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. So you see Noah that we've heard all of these glowing reports about to this point. Noah, who was such a good man, so outstanding, and the only one in his entire generation who was like him. There's nobody like Noah. And here we see him fall into sin in this story. And his his sin, of course, is not that he became a man of the soil. That's not sinful. Uh, It was not sinful, of course, that he planted a vineyard. And it wasn't even sinful that he drank of the wine of the vineyard. It was sinful that he became drunk. And then you see the consequences that come from that. And so his drunkenness is a sin, and we can see that he lay uncovered in his tent, and we don't have a whole lot of details given here. 
And by the way, the, the, the uh, history of the interpretation of this passage is a, kind of a history of speculation. I wonder, I wonder. Well, it doesn't say, and so I'm not going to wonder, okay? I'm not going to chase that rabbit because if it doesn't say it, I don't want to go down that road. But we see his drunkenness. We see that it leads to some sort of indiscretion or at least carelessness that would give rise to this situation of Ham coming in and seeing him uh, lying unclothed uh, in this situation. So drunkenness is the root of this problem. Now, I call this a second fall because there are uh, some surprising parallels here, and I'm not even going to give all of the parallels, between Adam and Noah. And these are very interesting, and, and they're not just parallels that are curious to the curious-minded. These are in the text that, that are, are painting a picture for us. First of all, both Adam and Noah are fathers of humanity. You know, Adam and Eve, they begin the human race, and it populates to a certain population, and then everybody except Noah and his family is wiped out at one point. So it's reduced again to one family. They're starting over, starting with Noah. And so he's a, a father of humanity. Secondly, they're both workers of the ground. That's unique. That's what they're doing. Both of them have that in common. Thirdly, Adam sins by consuming of the fruit of the tree, and Noah sins by consuming of the fruit of the vine. There's, there's similarity. It's, it's painted for us in, in a parallel structure that's drawing uh, this to our attention. We're, we're being reminded of what went on back in Genesis chapter 3. And there's uh, another parallel here that's important for us to keep in mind. Each one's sin results in a, a shameful nakedness. Adam was naked, Eve was naked, and then they fell into sin and it became shameful. So the sin results in this shameful nakedness. Well, uh, with Noah here, you see him uh, and his sin of drunkenness ends with him in a state of shameful nakedness. So we have parallels, right? We're being drawn back into the story of Adam and, and what's going on there, and we're seeing things being repeated with the new hope of humanity, Noah and his family. The earth has been scrubbed clean, the, the, the flood has come, and all the, the wicked people have been wiped out, and yet... Here, the godliest man, and sin crops up in his heart. We see a second fall. Look at verse 22. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. So here you have Ham come on the scene. You have three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And Ham is one of those sons and uh, he, it's noted here, and that's going to be part of the story, that he is the father of Canaan. He saw the nakedness of his father. And then he went and reported it. You know, if you, if you stumble upon uh, a situation like this where, you know, dad for the first time ever is passed out drunk in his tent and he's uncovered, it's inappropriate, and, and you happen to, you know, walk in like, hey, dad, I wanted to... Right? You, you cover that up. Like, it's, it's shameful. That's awful. That's a, that's a bummer of a situation to be a part of, right? That's not necessarily sin or anything at that point. But what he does with it is sin. He goes to his brothers and he's like, I, I got something to tell you, right? You know where dad is? You know what dad's doing? This is the funniest thing, right? He goes to his brothers to report on uh, this 
shame this situation that his father is in. That's Ham's response. He finds out a juicy bit of information and he runs with it to tell others. And so that's Ham's response. Look at Shem and Japheth's response in verse 23. Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders. Now, look at how much attention the author is giving to the distinction, the, the contrast between Ham's response and the response of his brothers. We were talking, we mentioned in Sunday school this morning about redundancy. There is redundancy here. He's telling it in detail. He's dragging it on and on, right? Shem and Japheth, they took a garment. They laid it on their shoulders. And they walked backward. And they covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backward and they did not see their father's nakedness. He is driving home the, the contrast between Ham and his two brothers. Ham found out this juicy bit of, of information that was, that was shameful to his father. It was something that he should have stayed quiet about. He should have, he should have taken care of covering his dad up and the brothers never find out about it or whatever. But he runs and, 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 and tells the tale. And his brothers jump through hoops to cover this up. They jump through hoops to remove the shame of their father not to extend the shame any further than it need to be. And so they, they take this garment and they put it over their shoulders and they're walking backwards and they're facing away from dad, you know, and they're waiting, you know, maybe his feet poke out, I don't know. It doesn't say, but they, they cover him up because they don't want his shame to be known. They take great pains to protect their father. They cover him literally and they cover him metaphorically by keeping a sensitive matter quiet. They don't want to ruin dad's reputation. They don't want Noah to be known as that guy who did that thing. Now, there are only, you know, so many people on the earth at the time, but they don't want to be tailbearers. They want to cover it up. They, they don't want it to get out of hand worse than it needs to, which is exactly the opposite of what Ham did. Found out the thing and tweeted about it immediately. I posted on Facebook, uh, you know, the story. And so here we see a fifth parallel between Adam and Noah. For both, that shameful nakedness that they had as a result of their sin was covered by another. Their sin results in a shameful nakedness, and that nakedness is covered by another. God clothed Adam and clothed Eve with skins. God provided that. God is the one who covered up their shame. And it was the brothers, Shem and Japheth, who cover their father with a garment. And so you see yet another parallel here with Adam. And I think before we move on in the story, we've got a couple of uh, quick points of application that we need to get to. And the first one is about alcohol itself. If you're going to drink alcohol, it, it has to be in moderation. And, and some, some don't have the capacity to drink alcohol in moderation they shouldn't drink alcohol. If they know that beginning that is going to end up in, uh, in dissolution, don't even start. But if you are going to drink alcohol, it needs to be in moderation. The Bible tells us that there is often a link between the abuse of alcohol, drunkenness, and sexual immorality. 
There's a connection between the two. They're closely linked with one another. And even just in Genesis itself, we don't have only this story, but just think a few chapters later in chapter 19 in that, that awful story of Lot and his daughters. It was brought about by alcohol. It was made possible by Lot's drunkenness. And so there's a close connection there. And so, so the Bible doesn't condemn alcohol outright, but it points out there is great danger to the misuse of alcohol. It leads down that path. It is something that if, if you're going to partake, do so in moderation. The second point of application, beware gossip. Be discreet. Guard your heart and your mouth against the temptation to spread tales about people. Now, this wasn't a tale that, that Ham made up. It was true. And some people say, well, I'm just telling the truth. Ham shouldn't have told the truth, not that he should lie, but he shouldn't broadcast the truth in this, in this instance. Sometimes we, 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 want to, we, we find out something and we want to go talk about it, and it's true, and we're thinking, well, I'm not gossiping because it's just the truth. Yeah, it's just the truth that you shouldn't have been making known all over the place. We need to be discreet. There's a, there's a time and a place where information should get out. There, there are appropriate uh, people who are in a position to deal with the situation, to resolve the situation, and it doesn't need to be broadcast everywhere. You don't, you don't make something secret so that it continue, can continue, so that it can, uh, destruction can come from it, and so uh, a pattern of harm or abuse or sin can continue. That's not what you're doing, but you're going to the appropriate authorities about it, the, the, the people who can deal with the situation and not beyond that. Because your goal is to restore this person, not tell a juicy story. Whoever covers an offense seeks love, but he who repeats a matter separates close friends. Proverbs 17, 19. Excuse me, 17, 9. And connected with this one, a, th a third point of application is honor your father and mother. We have a situation here where Ham did exactly the opposite. He exposed his father's shame. That's exactly the opposite of honoring your father. And so, uh, so Ham, Ham has really um, taken a, a destructive and sinful route here. And so, uh, but we want to continue. We want to see what comes of this. Noah's fall is like a second fall of humanity. The flood may have cleaned the earth, but there's still sin in the heart of man. And as with Adam's fall, this one ends in blessing and curses too just like the fall of Adam and Eve. So let's look at blessings and curses, which is our next section here. Look at verse 24. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, we're not sure how he knows, and we're not sure any more about the situation, but he knows, he learns, he finds out, he knows what his youngest son did to him. He said, Cursed be Canaan, servant of servants, shall he be to his brothers. Now, who committed the sin? Ham. But the curse is upon Canaan. That, that can be troubling to us when we think about it, that the father committed the sin and yet the curse happens to the son. We've been told in the story already about uh, the fact that Ham is Canaan's father. The author is trying to prepare us for the fact that uh, we've got this relationship, and, and, and why would the recipients of Genesis be concerned about Canaan? Well, it's written by Moses. 
It's written after they have gone out of Egypt and they're about to go into the land of Canaan, where live the Canaanites, right? So, so Moses is making explicit for us the history of these people, the history of the Canaanites, who they really are. They're not just the next-door neighbors. Someone asked me this morning in Sunday school, who, who, who were the Hittites? Right? Well, they're, they're the neighbors or whatever, but the Canaanites are a very special group of neighbors. They're the ones who live in that piece of land. They're the ones that are going to be ousted by the arrival of the Israelites into that land. They're the ones that are going to be a thorn in their flesh and there's going to be a struggle. And, right? It's a part of the history. It's a part of what the nation of Israel, having come out of Egypt, is anticipating about going into the land of Canaan. And so the words here are not so much about the fact that you have a man named Ham who committed a sin and it is his son, Canaan, this individual, who ends up bearing that curse. That's not the point. The point is that the line of Canaan, the Canaanites, will bear this curse. It's a statement not about a, a young man or a little boy or, uh, or this baby even. It's a statement about the descendants of that person. And lest we, you know, think that this is too rough a statement about the Canaanites, uh, that they would end up being um, servants, a servant of servants uh, to brothers, and particularly the Shemites, uh, the Semites, the, the Hebrews, that's, uh, that's their, their lineage. Lest we think that's, that's too, um, too rough and too awful, we need to think about who the Canaanites become and what they are like. And so, uh, if, you'll, if you'll flip over real quick, we're not going to spend a lot of time in it. It's an uncomfortable passage. Leviticus chapter 18. Leviticus 18 gives us essentially the definition of what is sexual immorality, which is a term that is used often in the New Testament. This is where it draws its source. Leviticus chapter 18. You've read this before, and if you've read it with your family, you probably skipped some sections, right? Or you, you translated, <laughs> right? <clears throat> which is okay. We, we translate for our children. But here's, here's what I want us, uh, want us to look at. I, we could read the whole chapter, but it would, it would, uh, it, it's very explicit and it's, and it's painful. I want to just introduce it and then close it out. Look at the verse, uh, the, uh, starting at verse 1. So this is later on. This is, uh, this is the law being given to the people of Israel as they're on their way. They've, got, they've left Egypt. They're going into Canaan. And the Lord spoke to Moses saying, verse 2, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, I am the Lord your God. You shall not do as they do, do in the land of Egypt, where you lived, and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. You shall follow my rules and keep my statutes and walk in them. I am the Lord your God. You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules, and if a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Verse 6. None of you shall approach any one of his close relatives to uncover nakedness. I am the Lord. And I'll pause there. That's how the rest of the chapter continues. If you, if you care to do a, a word study, uh, a, a word search on uh, nakedness, you're going to find it piled right here. And you're going to find that it's back in our chapter in Genesis 9. And that's on purpose. And so it describes all of these illicit uh, relationships that should not exist, that are, that are those that are condemned by God and... The idea here at the beginning of the chapter is this is what they do in Canaan. Don't be like them. And this is what they did in Egypt. Don't be like them. But look how it closes out the chapter. Look at verse 24. 
Do not make yourselves unclean by any of these things. For by all these, the nations I am driving out before you have become unclean. And the land became unclean, so that I punished its iniquity, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. But you shall keep my statutes and my rules, and do none of these abominations, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you, for the people of the land who were before you did all these abominations, so that the land became unclean, lest the land vomit you out when you make it unclean, as it vomited out the nation that was before you. And so we see what the Canaanites turn into, that they take this, this hint of some sort of sexual sin that exists with Ham, and they develop it fully into a, a degenerate state that pollutes the entirety of the land, so much so that God said the land vomits them out. And so don't be like them. Right, these are the Canaanites. These are the people who possess the land that the nation of Israel is about to move into. And so Canaan is cursed, and he follows after the sins of his father Ham. And his descendants take that, and they multiply it, and they multiply it, and it pollutes the entirety of the land. So I think we have a point of application here that's important for us about sexual immorality. That we may think, you know, I've heard people say, you know, whose business is it of yours, what goes on behind, you know, in the bedroom or, or whatever. Well, it's God's business, for one thing. And when left unchecked, like in Leviticus 18, it resulted in an entire people being kicked out of a land. It had impact on the entirety of the land. It wasn't just uh, between two people. It wasn't just a particular cultural thing that was going on and, and, and you prudish uh, Christians shouldn't be worried about that, you Puritans. No, it's important. God's standards, when they are broken, have consequences. And this is the extremity of that consequence that we see playing out in Leviticus chapter 18. And we see it being promised in the form of a curse here in Genesis chapter 9. And so we live in a day and age that does not take sexual morality seriously at all. We have, we have pastors talking about uh, saying that, that uh, the Bible whispers about sexual sin, shouts about other things, but whispers about sexual sins. Baloney. It calls it out for what it is. We just don't like to read it. Our culture just doesn't want to turn to Leviticus 18. Our culture just doesn't want to recognize this stuff. And so we, as Christians, need to be aware God cares about your sexual purity. It is important to Him. And we see the consequences for a culture that will ignore it. It ends up with them being vomited out of the land. And so Canaan is cursed, follows after the sins of his father and his descendants run into it even farther. And so here we have a sixth parallel between Adam and Noah. Both of their sins result in a terrible strife within the family. Adam and Eve, they had these three sons, <clears throat> and the first one killed the second one. Murder within, within a family. Well, here it's not murder exactly, but you have you have one being uh, declared to be the servant of the other two. A servant of servants, he's so lowly. You've got strife created within a family right here. But there's also a blessing given to Shem. 
and to Japheth for their discretion and their care for their father, whereas Ham pursued his routes, and it resulted in certain consequences for him and for his offspring. Yet on the other side, we read this in verse 26. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. So Shem, the father of the Shemites, we, use, we pronounce it Semites, Semitic, right, which is, is going to include uh, the Hebrew people in their line. Shem uh, will have a special and a unique relationship with Yahweh. Sound familiar? We see it start already. We see a promise being made here in Genesis chapter 9 that this is what is going to come about. There's going to be a, a, a close relationship. There's going to be a unique and special relationship between the Shemites and Yahweh Himself. And so, blessed be the Lord. It's actually a blessing upon God. It's a declaration of God's goodness in this situation, the God of Shem. And, of course, Shem is blessed in his connection with the Lord and let Canaan be his servant. Look at verse 27. May God enlarge Japheth. By the way, the word Japheth sounds like the word for enlarge. May God enlarge Japheth and let him dwell in the tents of Shem and let Canaan be his servant. So, so Japheth is going to expand enormously, spread all over the place. They're going to be enlarged. And that's the first part. May God enlarge Japheth, which is a form of blessing, the, the fact that they're multiplying and, and they're going to be everywhere. And by the way, this, is, this, this covers the majority of the Gentile world. And when you think about the balance of populations and things like that, the, uh, this, the Semitic population is relatively minor, particularly if we think about the Hebrew population, the, the Israelite population, uh, as compared to the Gentile population, which is ginormous. And so you've got a statement being made right here about the expanding, the spreading, the enlarging of Japheth, and they will be blessed not only numerically, but they will be blessed also greatly in that they will be brought in to dwell in the tents of Shem. So you've got a numerous people out there, and here is Shem and his descendants with a special relationship with Yahweh, and these numerous Japhethites spread everywhere begin to dwell within the tents of Shem. They begin to share in that blessing. And so here is uh, the, the blessing and the cursing that's given as a result of uh, the sin that we have in this uh, kind of a tragic story, but it doesn't end here. I want us to move to our third point, which is uh, uh, hints of the future. But this, this starts the ball rolling. This starts us thinking. For, for those of us who've read the rest of the Bible, for those of us who know how history develops and where things end up going, particularly as we go through the Old Testament, the rise of the nation of Israel, and, and what that all means, and promises made, and then the New Testament, and, 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 and promises kept, and all of that kind of stuff, we see that there are hints at redemption right here in this passage. The Japhethites will expand and become enormous in number, and they will eventually come in to bear the blessing. Not every one of them. This not, this is, these aren't absolute statements. But, but in the, the tents of Shem is the blessing of, of the Lord, and Japhethites will begin to move into that and partake of those blessings, partake of that special relationship that Shem has with Yahweh. One one uh, very famous Old Testament scholar said, we are all Japhethites dwelling in the tents of Shem. 
That's what we are. We Gentiles who are in Christ. We are the Japhethites who were out there and we have been brought in to dwell in the tents of Shem. It's not about where you live. It's not about, uh, you know, a tent or anything like that. It's about, it's about receiving blessing of connection with Shem. The fact that we receive these blessings that are found in Christ, bound up in Him, found only in Him, and they are ours, not because we are Shemites. We are not, most of us. We're Japhethites, but we have the blessing of dwelling in the tents of Shem, of receiving those blessings that are found in Christ. And so, there's a doctrinal point I want to make before we go on. When we consider the fall of Noah, this uniquely godly man, there's a point of application with this as well, we might wonder why Noah's story had to end on such a low note. Remember, we started uh, the sermon by talking about the why questions that we usually can't answer. You know, you read about Noah and you think, man, what a godly guy, and I'd, I'd like, love to be like that guy, and, and he's, so, uh, he's so godly in all these ways, and look at all that he did, and then he crashes at the end. And you think, why? Why did that have to happen? Those why questions are always hard to answer, but we can see how God used this very travesty to bring about the redemption of very many Shemites and of all of those Japhethites who are brought into the tents of Shem to experience the blessings of salvation in Yahweh, in Christ. So, you read this story, and if, if you stop at the end of verse 29, you're, it's a sad state. But as you continue and as you see the direction it goes, we can see that because of the blessings and the curses that are given as a result of this tragic situation, you and I, Gentile Christian, get to be in Christ. We're included in, that this is expanded to include us. And so, so when I think about your situation and I think about the difficulty you're going through, and, and I don't know most of your situations. I know uh, some are dealing with loss or, or the, the threat of loss or, or poor health or you know, broken relationships or financial difficulty or other things that have happened. Maybe you've crashed and burned. And you think, well, what now? What good could possibly come out of this? Well, I don't know specifically. I'm not a prophet or the son of a prophet. But I can say that God is sovereign. And He is good. And He is at work in your situation. And that if you are in Christ, the promise is that God works all things together for your good. Now, that doesn't always mean a fat bank account. That doesn't always mean good health. It doesn't always mean happiness in relationship. It doesn't always mean that you don't lose that person you're afraid of losing. Specifically in that passage in Romans 8, Paul is talking particularly about our sanctification, about our being conformed to the image of Christ through this difficulty. And Christian, you and I want that. In our sober moments, in our, in our best moments, in our wise moments, we want to be conformed to the image of Christ more than we want the fat bank account, more than we want comfort, though I like comfort. More than we want happiness in that relationship, though I like happiness in relationships and all those things are important and they're good, but there is something that I want more and that is to be conformed to the image of Christ. And that is what God is doing if you are a Christian. 
And so when you face loss and you face this great difficulty and you face even personal collapse and, and, and crash, yeah, there are things you do to, to make changes and do all these other things, but ultimately our eyes should be drawn to Him and to the work that He is doing in our lives to conform us to the image of His Son. And I praise God for that because I don't often have the fat bank account. I don't often have the, the health that I would like or the people that I care about having that health. or I, 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 All these things I'm uncertain about, and if I were to keep focused on them in life, I would be, I'd be crazy, and I would have no security, and I would have no comfort. But ultimately, Christian, our eyes are fixed on Christ, and we receive that promise that He is working all things together for our good. For all of those who love Him and are called according to His purpose, conforming us to the image of Christ. And so I can take comfort, even in the midst of an uncomfortable situation. And there's a final point of application I want to make here. Apart from Christ, we all lie naked and exposed in our sins before God. In a state of shame and guilt, we have no excuse and we have no hope on our own. We have to be covered by another. That's what the author is trying to drive through to us. With Adam and Eve being covered by God, by His provision, and even in this situation with Noah, the great man of God, required his sons to cover him. We must have our shame, our guilt covered by another. You and I need to have our sin and our shame covered David speaks of this in Psalm 32, and Paul quotes it in Romans chapter 4. He says, Blessed is the man whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sin is covered. That guilt that we bear is shameful, and it is, it is something that we deserve judgment by God. That's our natural state that we're in. We must be covered by another. We must have our sins dealt with. And if our sins are to be dealt with, even the ones we've talked about today, maybe, maybe drunkenness is an issue. Maybe, maybe alcohol has led you to sexual immorality and you're thinking, well, I know that path. Or maybe you've, you've crashed in some other ways or some of the things we've talked about today. Maybe, maybe you struggle with gossip. You just, you just can't bear to keep your mouth shut. You've got to take it to somebody. And you struggle with that, and you, and you feel guilty, and you, and you, and you feel that, that, that guilt. You, you struggle with sexual immorality, that you're, you, you kind of identify with, with the Canaanites, and you, you don't want that. And you, and you got this guilt. What do you do? Blessed is the man whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Our sins have to be covered, and the only way they can be covered, not with a blanket, not with some skins, but is by imputation. We must be covered by the payment of another. And so the Bible teaches us about imputation where our guilt is placed on Christ and punished in Him so that by faith our sin is taken off of us and it's put on Him and it's punished to the fullest extent in Him so that there is no punishment left for us who are in Christ. And His righteousness 
his life of righteousness where he has always obeyed. We have, we have a very real sense in which Adam is, of course, the first Adam, and Noah is a second Adam. And in some ways, he's a great second Adam. But in the end, he leads to death for all of his offspring as well. And so we need a last Adam. We need someone to obey in our place, and that's Christ. And Christ himself has obeyed. He has completely fulfilled God's expectations, God's commands, God's law. And so he has all of this righteousness. And by faith, our sin is put to him in punishment. His righteousness, full account of righteousness is given to us. And so we're covered. And here we stand, Christian, in God's sight with our shame and our nakedness and our guilt taken away and the righteousness of Christ piled on us so that when He looks at us, that's what He sees is the righteousness of Christ. And this is all ours and only ours by faith in Christ. And so we come to the Lord's Supper where we get to celebrate this reality. So if you would take your, your elements out, <clears throat> this reality is for Christians to celebrate. We are celebrating not just a meal, uh, not just uh, some elements. We are celebrating the fact that we have been covered by Christ. That our guilt and our shame which was laid bare. And, and if we die in that guilt and shame, if we die outside of Christ, we will come before God utterly unprepared. And we will bear the penalty for our sins. Anyone apart from Christ, that's their future. And this is, this is what, what people so often don't understand. When you talk to them about the gospel, they think it's a religious thing and, and uh, go to my church or go to this church. And, and yeah, I tried that. And we're talking about ultimate reality and ultimate destiny. And a Christian is someone who realizes, I'm like Noah in the tent, shameful and unconscious, unable to cover myself, and I require the covering of another. And the Christian is the one who realizes that and then looks to Christ, looks to the one who has obedience to place upon us, who has paid a penalty to take our sin from us and pay that there. And thus we get to stand in God because of what Christ has done and because of our union with Him by faith. And so if you're not a Christian, if this is, if this is not true of you, if you, if you uh, uh, don't know Christ, let these elements pass. Let this time pass. This is something for the Christian to celebrate what is ultimate reality. And so... Well, Christian, we're going to spend some time in uh, reflection and confession of sin. And I know for some people, a time of communion is a, is a downer because they feel like they, they, their life has to be all cleaned up or else they can't take the Lord's Supper. They've got to be pure and holy in their lifestyle. And if they've got anything that they struggle with, should I take this, should I not take it? Let me, let me help you with what's going on. You have more sin than you're aware of. Confess all of it that you can. Come before God and say, I am guilty. And, there, and, and I'm guilty in ways I never even thought of before, and they're worse than I could have imagined. And I lay that on Christ. The, the, the penalty that he paid is sufficient for that too, Christian. The righteousness that he gives is righteousness still, and it is yours. So as we take this time of reflection and of confession, 
what we find is that when we, we confess our sins to Him, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness because of what we celebrate right now. So let's go to the Lord together uh, silently in prayer, time of, a time of confession of sin, a time of expression of joy when we find forgiveness in Christ, and then we'll celebrate together. Let's pray. Father, we usually don't have to search very deep to find sin of thought or word or deed, of omission, and we lay those sins before you and we confess them to you. They are hateful to you destructive to us. And so we lay them at your feet. We lay them at the feet of Jesus. And we ask that you would forgive us our sins. And we thank you that you are faithful and just. And because Christ has paid the full penalty for even those sins, and that because His righteousness is full righteousness and untainted, undented by my lack. By faith in you, I stand before you forgiven and righteous. And I rejoice. And this is all ours because of Christ. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen. First, we come to the bread. Paul said in 1 Corinthians eleven twenty three, I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This body, this is my body, which is for you. Father, we are grateful for the body of Christ given for us where he bore the penalty for our sins. We praise you for Jesus and his sacrifice for us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Jesus said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. We come to the cup. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Father, we are so grateful for the new covenant accomplished by Christ, given to us. That he has done the work. That he has made the atonement. 
that He has worked in such a way that we even have new hearts, hearts that beat for you and are responsive to you, righteousness credited to us, and sin removed because of what Christ has done. We thank you for Jesus, and we thank you for this reminder of His, uh, His blood, which is the new covenant. We are grateful, and we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus said, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until He comes. And if you have faith in Christ and an attitude of repentance by virtue of Christ's death, which we've just celebrated, your sins are forgiven. Isn't that a joy? Your sins are forgiven. Let's pray. Father, we, we rejoice in the fact that our sins are forgiven in Christ for every one of us who is in Christ. We rejoice. We came in burdened down with sin and we leave without that. We, we leave being reminded of what Christ has accomplished for us as we celebrate in the Lord's Supper, as we heard about even in our passage today. We are grateful for you. We thank you. Thank you for lifting our eyes and our hearts to you. Thank you for this new life that we have in Christ, for your spirit that dwells within us. We pray that even as we go out this week that, that uh, we would look to you even still, that when we face difficulty or perhaps temptation or when we have opportunity to, uh, to share with someone who doesn't know you, I pray that our eyes would be fixed on you, that we would be so enamored with what you have accomplished for us in Christ that our lives would be utterly changed. In our behavior, the way we deal with temptation, the way we deal with sin, the way we deal with other people, the way we deal with loss and hardship and pain, because of Christ. And we thank you for Jesus. And we pray in his name. Amen. There's going to be a family up here who would love to pray with you. I would also remind you that it is uh, that Sunday of the month where we take a benevolence offering. So there's a box in the back and a plate in the foyer where you can give uh, an an offering there to help with uh, those who have need. I want to close with these words. Now, may the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with us all, both now and from this day forward and forevermore. Amen and amen. God bless you all, and you're dismissed.